Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble is presenting a new version of their original production, Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. I began this research, and for the first time, I really became a Floridian. We'll discuss the amazing journey of Nathaniel H. Bishop in a paper canoe. Bishop was an interesting character. He had an adventurous spirit from a very young age. And we'll explore traditional bluegrass music in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Before the annual presentation of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination begins, Lady Gail Ryan engages audience members, finding out where they're from and leading them in a high-spirited sing-along of Florida songs, including Where the Orange Blossoms Grow. As founder and director of the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble, Ryan is responsible for organizing the annual presentation of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. The production, which changes every year, features a series of vignettes portraying stories of Florida history and culture, from Native society to European contact to pioneer settlement to the early space program. A native Floridian born in Miami, Lady Gail Ryan's energy and enthusiasm for the history and culture of our state is contagious. Born in 1929 in Florida, right in the blast of the boom. But, you know, I didn't know anything, anybody being poor. I didn't know any, because we raised our own vegetables. We lived in a place where sunshine and and I washed my hair in the rain. We had the best time. Ryan's parents and sister moved to Florida from Indiana, driving down in two Model T Fords and camping along the way. While camping just off of a shell road in central Florida, the family was awakened by a noisy group of wild hogs. The Ryans moved on, settling in Miami. Our house was built from the lumber that Flagler sold when they tore down the Royal Ponciana Hotel, which was amazing. If it hadn't been for Flagler, we wouldn't have lived in this marvelous house, and you never had any termites ever, ever, because he had the original Florida pine. Although Ryan remembers her childhood in Florida fondly, she grew up with her heart set on seeing the world and singing opera. She achieved her goals, getting her education in Michigan and New York, and learning to speak Italian while studying in Europe. Ryan returned to Miami, teaching there for several decades. She earned the honorific title Lady from the Dade County Commission for her work organizing the Miami Renaissance Fairs. In the mid-1980s, Lady Gail Ryan moved to the Space Coast. She organized the Storytellers of Brevard, which evolved into the Brevard Theatrical Ensemble. 
Over the years, the group has performed original productions focusing on women's history, Native American culture, and American innovation. They've presented selected scenes from plays by Shakespeare and an annual program of scary stories around Halloween. Nine years ago, Ryan was asked to research Florida's cracker culture and create an original production based on the state's pioneer settlers. The result was the first version of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination. Ryan says that she was sometimes embarrassed to admit that she was a Florida cracker herself, particularly while living in New York and Europe. She has since learned to respect the intrepid people who settled Florida and now embraces her heritage. It got started because they, someone asked me in the library, research crackers and about the native Floridians. I said, I'm a native Floridian and I'm definitely not a cracker. And, but I went ahead and I, when they offered me an interesting amount of money, I said, okay, I'll do the research. And I began this research and for the first time I really became a Floridian. After the first couple of years focusing on pioneer culture, the program expanded to include stories from throughout Florida history. Every year, different stories are performed, keeping the production constantly evolving. Well, because there's so many stories to tell, and besides, I, I like different things, and I don't want to be bored, and I do not want my cast to be bored, and I think that the most difficult thing to do is to repeat something like on Broadway when they have a musical. I don't know how they ever stay in their right mind doing it for three or four years. How do they keep it fresh? You know, it's only their genuine talent that they can do that. And I thought, oh, I don't want that. I want it brand new and fresh because when it's brand new and fresh, they're sparkly and, oh, they don't know where they're going to make a mistake. They have to do some research. And this is the only way to get everybody who worked with this to look at history because the people here they are in the program are not from Florida originally, but they've had experience being here. But they're not Floridians as such and maybe don't know too much about it. But that was the only way to keep my crew of people that are talented people and were storytellers together and really want to do it every year, otherwise they're bored. The eighth production of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination includes stories about the Calusa people, Spanish conquistadors, and Florida pioneers. Audiences will be introduced to fascinating people such as cigar maker and citrus grower Count Odette Philippe, writer Harriet Beecher Stowe, and aviator Jackie Cochran. Originally from West Virginia, Mike Mellon moved to Florida in 1961, so he considers himself a native Floridian. In past productions of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, Mellon has portrayed characters including the Barefoot Mailman and entrepreneur Henry Flagler. This year, Mellon will be talking about buzz bombs that help lead to the development of the space program. Back in the pre-theme park days, if you'd ask anybody, you know, what's Florida known for, few people would probably say the Orange Groves, but most people would say the space program. That's where they launched people into space from. And in their minds, the space program and therefore Florida's history probably started in the 1950s when, when we started launching stuff. But actually, the history of uh, rocketry in Florida goes back a lot further than that. It goes back all the way to World War I era. And during World War II, the Germans had these buzz bombs, the flying bombs that they used at long distance to, to bomb England. But the original research on that was done here in Florida, in a little town of Arcadia. There was a airfield where we're training pilots uh, called Calstrom Field and one of the projects there was developing a flying bomb that could target uh, hit targets miles away without endangering soldiers lives. 
Lizzie Seal was born and raised in Melbourne, Florida. In past productions of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, she has told stories about topics such as the wreckers of Key West and the town of Alligator, now known as Lake City. This year, Seal will be talking about the Everglades. I consider the Everglades and uh, the original area of South Florida to be almost, almost an introvert's paradise. It's not like the Grand Canyon where there's grand, colorful explosions and geysers and things that you can look at all over. You have to look deeper. You have to look at all the subtleties and the subtle colors and you will be absolutely amazed at the variety of wildlife, the fish, the birds. There are crocodiles and alligators. And there's nowhere else in the world where there are both crocodiles and alligators than in the southern part of Florida in the Everglades. The eighth edition of Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination is being performed this month at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ticket information can be found at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to read our Florida Frontiers blog, listen to archived editions of this program, watch original video, and much more. You can also become a member of the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Winding and swirling Dancing along, pass by the old willow tree, where lovers caress as we sing the bar song, rejoicing together when we greet the sea. And it goes on and on, watching the Wow.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, Nathaniel H. Bishop visited Florida in 1875, arriving in an unusual way. Yeah, that's right. When Bishop first came to Florida, it was aboard a small 14-foot paper canoe, if you can believe that. Um, Bishop was an interesting character. He had a adventurer spirit from a very young age. Uh, he was born in Medford, Massachusetts in 1837, and at the age of 17, he traveled to South America and embarked on a thousand-mile journey across the continent. He later published his journey in a, uh, a series of manuscripts. He came back to the Northeast, settled in Massachusetts, had a cranberry farm uh, for a little while, but apparently the, uh, the itch to travel hit him again sometime in the early 1870s, and he decided to embark on a journey uh, aboard a canoe from Montreal at that time, from from, uh, the Quebec province of Canada, all the way along the eastern seaboard to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, a a distance of approximately 2,500 miles. But unlike uh, many other adventurers who would uh, embark on a train or a large sloop, he decided to do it in a small canoe. Now, originally, the the first canoe that he built was actually made of wood. It was a traditional birch bark uh, canoe, but it weighed a few hundred pounds, and he only made it about 400 miles before the canoe was swamped, and he was exhausted. Uh, So while in uh, the small town of, at that time, Troy, New York, he found a boat builder who was uh, constructing these canoes out of paper. And the paper was a thick manila type of paper, and it was layered on uh, several layers thick and then covered with a hard lacquer. So the actual exterior of the canoe was very strong, um, but it also made the canoe incredibly lightweight. It was only about 58 pounds, which made it possible to portage the canoe or to carry it by hand uh, over uh, overland routes. So a lot of the eastern seaboard at that time, at least the inland waterway, was not um, properly marked. So we don't, we didn't have um, a lot of uh, uh, reliable charts at that time. Uh, so one of the big goals was to to create um, a, a navigable chart along the eastern seaboard. And using this tiny canoe, Bishop thought that that he could do it in a, a short amount of time. How does Bishop describe Florida in his written works? So Bishop uh, actually left Quebec City July 4th of 1874. He doesn't make it to Florida until early 1875, first crossing over uh, the St. Mary's River, the boundary waters into Florida, uh, like I said, about February, March of 1875. And at first he's uh, kind of taken aback at how rural really the settings are. Now this is someone who had never been to Florida. And keep in mind in 1874, we're, we're uh, you know, less than a decade after the end of the Civil War, the population of Florida was still very, very small. Um, and the areas that he was traveling into, these uh, upland river uh, systems, were very sparsely populated. Uh, most of the, the uh, people that he encountered were engaged in lumbering operations. They were uh, fishermen or, or just frontiersmen who were living, uh, you know, away from civilization. And, and a lot of the characters he describes in, in uh, really colorful detail. Um, one group in particular, he talks a lot about um, African Americans. These are, are uh, freedmen, you know, uh, recently emancipated slaves who were living in Florida or who had moved to Florida after the end of the Civil War. In kind of a common Northeastern mentality at the time, he kind of approaches it with a paternalistic uh, type of view. You know, he, he sees the, the African Americans more as kind of a, a caricature. Um, and he at length describes in, in kind of a f- uh, phonetic vernacular. Um, how a lot of the African-American communities, uh, how they assemble for religious gatherings. He talks a lot about some of their 
their lumbering operations and their kind of separate communities outside of the white community. So, you know, in that regard, uh, it, it's an it's a valuable piece of uh, of literature because we can kind of see what these communities were like, at least through the eyes of uh, of someone from the Northeast who had never really lived in the South, and it's a, a kind of a different viewpoint um, in 1875. But of course, he also talks about the wildlife. He encounters uh, a number of large alligators uh, throughout most of the Southeast. He also relates a story of a Florida panther that had attacked a hunter on the Suwannee River uh, a few weeks before he had actually passed through that area and actually killed the killed the hunter. Um, but I'd like to uh, just read a passage of, of one of the uh, encounters with an alligator uh, along the Suwannee River. Bishop writes, quote, While I listened, there rose a cry so hideous in its character and so belligerent in its tone that I trembled with fear upon my palm-leaf mattress. It resembled the bellowing of an infuriated bull, but was louder and more penetrating in its effect. The proximity of this animal was indeed unpleasant, for he had planted himself on the river's edge, near the little bluff upon which my camp had been constructed. The loud roar was answered by a similar bellow from the other side of the river, and for a long time did these two male alligators keep up their challenging cries without coming to combat." Well, why is Bishop's journey significant to us today? Well, as I mentioned before, most of the small inland uh, river systems throughout the eastern seaboard, including Florida, were uncharted. Uh, So one of the goals of Bishop's expedition was to relay detailed uh, maps and charts to the um, U.S. Coastal Survey Service because he wanted these waterways to be opened up for navigation. Uh, He felt with a little bit of dredging, we could open up these waterways, and rather than traveling in the open ocean, small ships would be able to sail uh, throughout the inland seas. He also talks a little bit about a cross-Florida bar canal uh, because the the route that he took was up the St. Mary's River, a small portage across to the Suwannee, and then down the Suwannee River into the Gulf of Mexico. Interesting. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida folk music includes a long tradition of bluegrass music. Holly Baker has this look at bluegrass music in the Sunshine State.
Bluegrass music has been called folk music and overdrive and that high and lonesome sound. Florida might not come to mind as a state with a strong bluegrass music tradition, but old-time string band and bluegrass have deep roots in Florida. Bluegrass is a mainstay at the long-running Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, Florida, and at other festivals and jam sessions throughout the state. Bluegrass music takes its name from Kentuckian Bill Monroe and his band called the Bluegrass Boys, who created a high-energy musical style in the early 20th century that combined elements of old-time string band, big band, and blues music. Bluegrass is also influenced by the musical stylings of Monroe's Uncle Penn, mandolinist Lester Flatt, and banjo picker Earl Scruggs. We recently discussed bluegrass music with 32-year-old East Tennessee bluegrass fiddler, violinist, guitarist, and orchestra conductor Derek Deacons. Deacons has played the violin since the age of five and the fiddle since the age of nine. As a professional musician, he has appeared numerous times on the Grand Ole Opry stage, and he has performed with the likes of Charlie Daniels, Mac Wiseman, the Osborne Brothers, Blake Shelton, and even Bill Monroe's son James. Deacons tells us more about bluegrass music. It's a hard-driving music. It's kind of a mixture of blues and fiddle tunes. And even Bill would say, you know, a lot of it came from his influence of being around uh, some of those blues guitar players that he was around growing up. So it's a, it's a heavy mixture of just hard-driving music with uh, a fiddle from Scotch-Irish tradition mixed in that he learned from his Uncle Penn. Fiddle tunes... And then, of course, a traditional bluegrass band, you're going to find the mandolin, banjo, bass, guitar, and fiddle. And sometimes you'll run into the dobro, which adds a, a, a new flavor to the style. I want to go back to see my daughter. I wonder if she's still free. To me, she's dear and sweet as honey. But is she still waiting for me? Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys performing Monroe's song called My Florida Sunshine at the 1993 Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. The father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, had numerous ties with Florida. Monroe performed at music festivals and events throughout the state, and in 1943 he bought his famous mandolin, a 1923 Gibson Lloyd Lore F5, after seeing it in a barbershop window in Miami, Florida. Monroe's most well-known song also has connections to Florida. Blue Moon of Kentucky was inspired by a large moon that Monroe saw over the highway while he was heading home after touring in Florida. It was on a moonlight night, the stars were shining bright, and they whispered from on high, your love is said goodbye. Blue Moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and said goodbye. Bluegrass music can still be heard in Florida, sometimes in unexpected places. The longest-running bluegrass jam in Florida occurs in a parking lot behind the Pizza Hut on West Colonial Drive in Ocoee, Florida. 74-year-old banjo picker Jack Lewis founded the Ocoee parking lot bluegrass jam with his wife Judy and their friend Cecil Parks Kimberly. 
You can usually find Jack, Judy, and other members of Moonlight Express at the gym, which takes place every Friday night and has done so for the last 25 years, weather permitting. sat down with Jack Lewis and he told us about his introduction to bluegrass music. And I was over at my mother's visiting and she was playing a bluegrass record, uh, namely Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, and I kind of uh, just kind of fell in love with it. And she loaned me the record and I told my wife I was going to learn to play a five-string banjo and that's the way it started. Lewis also told us more about the folks who stopped by the Okoye parking lot bluegrass jam each week. We call them pickers and grinners, the people that play in the music picking and the grinners over there listening and enjoying it. But a lot of couples we think would, would come on Friday night because they didn't have much else to do. And uh, they looked forward to it every Friday night. So we enjoyed them being there and we would play for them, play to them. We knew a lot of people, they would request songs and we'd do it for them. Just having a good time, that's what it's all about. Bluegrass fiddler Derek Deacons recently dropped by the Okoye parking lot to play his fiddle with Jack Lewis and other bluegrass musicians who gathered there on a Friday night. says there's something about the Okoye parking lot bluegrass jam that keeps him coming back. If it boiled down to it, it would be the music. I mean, I love bluegrass, and I love being able to play it with people that know the same songs as me. But Okoye especially has just a, a great group of people that are friendly and welcoming. It's almost like going to a family reunion each week and talking to each other, not only about music, but things that are going on in your life. It just becomes a, a real friendship and connection with the community. Bluegrass, the style of music created in the Kentucky Hills nearly 100 years ago, is still alive at bluegrass jams and festivals throughout Florida. For the past 25 years, on Friday nights at dark 30, you can even find it in a parking lot in Okoe. Just follow the sound of Jack Lewis's banjo. Seen a lot of changes. Uh, gonna see some more probably. But hopefully the bluegrass jam will hang in there. We're still having fun. Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for this program came from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our editor is John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brotmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.